Ladies and gentlemen, we have 13 at the minute. Let's just maybe wait one or two more minutes to uh, see if anyone else is going to join us. But um, as a preamble for today's conversation, how to take the guesswork out of expert judgment. I'm guessing everyone would like to be able to walk away from here, being able to do all the numbers and all the math and all the stats. And while there is scope for some of us to be able to do that, the reality is today's discussion is an introduction. The most important thing about today is to let you know uh, what the scope or the art of the possible is when it comes to trying to characterize expert judgment. judgment. And uh, engineers and technicians and decision makers and let's just say important people can sometimes be quite snobbish when it comes to information um, and what I mean by that is we sometimes don't like making decisions based on what some of us derisively refer to as best guesses or subjective opinions uh, sometimes we say I will only make decisions that's that's informed by information derived from data and in some cases that's the right call to make you sometimes need to make decisions based on information you glean from data there are certain cases where that is what you need to do but the vast for the vast majority of decisions we actually use this wonderful thing called expert judgment when we design something from scratch we don't test or gather data to work out if we're going to use a hydraulic pump or a pneumatic pump or choose between an electrical power source or an electrical motor versus an internal combustion engine uh, we use this thing called expert judgment. And uh, if you can imagine all the decisions you make personally on a daily basis, I know that you aren't conducting exhaustive data gathering tests for each and every single one of those decisions that you make. It is based on your combined experiences and combined uh, knowledge, what you've learned over the years, this wonderful thing we call expert judgment. And one of the most magnificent aspects of expert judgment is that it is essentially free. Of course, it's not free in that you had to spend time and money going to university and reading books and, and uh, practicing how to do things. But as of today, if I wanna access the expert judgment you return in your brain, it is now a free exchange of information. It already exists, it's right there. And for that reason, we want to maximize the extent to which we can use expert judgment on a daily basis. Now, before I go on and look at a really cool example, um, I wanna talk about confidence. Confidence is something we talk about a lot in, again, everyday life, but in particular, when we're dealing with reliability and availability and maintainability, we, we use the term confidence often with a very statistical overtone. That is, we might be interested in understanding some sort of number or some sort of metric or some sort of parameter. And we might want to have confidence that that's our, let's, for lack of a better term, our guess of what that number is, is within certain limits. So for example, if we're interested in 
uh, the on-demand reliability of a missile, the mission reliability of some sort of missile, for example. Uh, we might expect that our data scientists out there will do some examination, some testing, some modeling, some analysis, all those wonderful things, and say, you know what? We believe that the reliability, the mission reliability of a missile is 0.99 or 99%. That's our point estimate. But we're 90% confident that it's between 0.985 and 0.995. So that's, that sort of uh, expresses what we call confidence in our estimate regarding some uncertain figure. Now, the reality is there's no uncertainty from the perspective of that missile. The, the mission reliability, the on-demand reliability is what it is. It is not changing. It's just uh, there waiting for us to learn more, more information about it. So confidence is a measure of us. It's not a measure of the missile system, the product, the system, the equipment. It is a measure of us. And why that's important is because we can do all sorts of different things to improve or diminish our confidence we have in a certain belief. Now, there are two sorts of confidence. One, one uh, form of confidence comes from understanding your process. So there are plenty of organizations out there who manufacture really reliable things and they are very confident in what they do because they understand how to design and manufacture reliable things. And a lot of these organizations uh, don't do a lot of quantitative testing. They know that because they did a FAMIR, a fault tree analysis, HALT, or, or whatever the right design for reliability strategy was for that device, and they have the skills, and you have a leadership team which is invested in creating a culture where you do it right the first time, uh, they don't need to do exhaustive testing to get confidence that what they are doing is going to result in something reliable. So that's confidence from understanding. The second form of confidence is confidence through statistics. Now, statistics are wonderful, subjective to an extent, but it can be expensive. I've seen test regimes which last over a year in order to generate confidence in terms of statistics. Now, as a rule, people who demand confidence from statistics are people who do not get confidence from understanding. You might think of a classic case is where you have some non-engineer or non-technician or someone who's not familiar with whatever product we're developing, all of a sudden they're in charge of our program or project or quality assurance, they are not really aware or not have good understanding of what it takes to make something reliable. And these are the sort of people who for whatever reason demand that we only get confidence through statistics. Now, of course, there are scenarios where you need to have confidence through from statistics. There's also a lot, lot of uh, other scenarios where we can derive confidence through understanding. And understanding is essentially a subset of expert judgment. So what I'm gonna talk about now is uh, after that sort of rambling introduction, I'm going to go through, and I, I dare say a couple of you might've seen this before if you've done some of my classes or undertaken some of my courses. An example where I wanted to suck the expert judgment 
out of a bunch of my students. Now that sounds quite violent and intrusive, but hopefully by the time you've uh, gone through this uh, discussion today, you'll see that there are ways we can suck this information out. So the scenario I'm going to paint is a uh, class where I'm teaching all sorts of wonderful reliability engineering stuff. And I ask my students um, in response, in regarding a monitor at the front of the classroom, I say, look, we, for whatever reason, are really interested in understanding the diagonal of this monitor, how long that is. Now, the reason why I use this as an example is because this is analogous to any troubling metric we're trying to get a better understanding of. Could be the mean time between failure. It could be reliability. It could be uh, repair rate. Um, it could be uh, estimated time until we think 5% of our products are going to fail, which is a really useful metric for determining um, uh, warranty period, for example. The point is, is that we have some metric that whether we like to admit it or not, there are a bunch of opinions that are stored in people's brain. And this is an, a good example where we have, in this case, a bunch of my students looking at a computer monitor at the front of the screen. And of course, they will have some sort of opinion about how wide or long that diagonal is. And let's just say that for whatever reason, we're not allowed to measure it or we can't measure it or the tape measure has been left at home or for whatever reason, we cannot physically actually measure this diagonal. And so the challenge is to try and estimate what this length is using expert judgment. And you can use this approach for any sort of number or metric that you, uh, you come across. Now, what we can now do is treat each one of our students as if they are essentially their own little test, their own little experiment. And, and this experiment involves these students observing something and formulating an idea of what that means in their brain. So in this case, we have one student who's looking at the TV or the monitor, and she, in this case, is using her combined experiences. Perhaps she's, she's done some carpentry where obviously you need to do a lot of measuring. Perhaps she's worked in an electronic TV store where she's very familiar with uh, typical computer monitor sizes and dimensions. Perhaps she's worked as a seamstress where you, of course, you need to do lots of measuring. Well, perhaps she's had no experience, but has had at least some, has some awareness of basic uh, units of measurement. And what's happening when we look at something like this, we form models in our brain. We uh, compare those models we, we create in our brain with our existing ideas or concepts about how long a centimeter is or how long an inch is. And we're able to come up with some um, usually hidden idea about the length of something like the diagonal of this TV screen or computer monitor. So that exists in brains. If every time I ask you to have a guess about something in particular, your brain is going through this process, if, even if it's not something that's very apparent. You, your brain is an amazing organ, can do all sorts of wonderful things. Um, and, and that's 
that's derived from our history as hunter-gatherers. We have to estimate how far away, for example, our prey is before we throw that spear, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this ability to judge distance and length is built into our brain. So let's just go back to the problem we're trying to solve. We want to understand how long the diagonal of the TV screen is. Now for the, um, in, in the guidebook, which Fred has shared the link to in the chat window, I, which follows everything we're going to go through today, plus a little bit more in terms of a couple of equations, if you do want to try and do a couple of these things in your own time. Uh, I use inches and centimeters to, uh, to express lengths, but for those, uh, some of our North American brethren today, unfortunately for you, this one is all about centimeters, paying homage to my Antipodean ancestry. So not, nonetheless, you don't have to get wrapped up in the units of measurement. All we, ne all we need to uh, understand is that this, this ruler here, this scale here represents some sort of a way we attribute a quantity to a number. We use exactly the same thing for mass, whether we use pounds or kilograms, torque, whether it's foot pounds or newton meters. We have come up with uh, some units of measurement we use to be able to create a language where we can converse and express quantities of virtually anything. So let's just say this scale here is how we measure something mean time to be between failure, years between failure, or months between failure, or operational hours between failure. Um, all those have arbitrary meanings, which we have predefined and essentially set up this scale for us to use. Now, when it comes to sucking the information out of someone's brain, their brain is furiously working away at trying to use this scale, which they have built into their brain over the years, to and, and uh, align this scale with what their eyes or what their um, hands tell them. And so each student is going to be looking at this particular uh, scale and, and come up with usually a point estimate. And so in this case, let's just say one of our students looked at the TV monitor or the computer monitor and in their brain, the brain's, uh, brain's best guess um, at what that length was or is, is 70 centimeters. But again, that is sometimes not easy to articulate, even though our brain is doing a really good job at judging distances, because centimeters and inches and foot pounds and newtons and everything else they're human constructs. They're not hardwired into our DNA. Uh, we sometimes struggle to easily put a number against this, uh, against this best guess. We often round it to the nearest 10, for example. We might say that's 60 centimetres or 70 centimetres or 80 centimetres, when in fact our brain's best guess might be 74.39 centimetres in terms of the units it uses. But nonetheless, let's just say we're able to peer into our brain and get a best guess like this. Uh, in this case, someone, some, one student believes that the diagonal of the TV is 70 centimeters. Now, of course we can't do that. So what do we do? We ask people, what do you think your best guess is? And of course, one of our students in this case might say, well, my best guess is 70 centimeters. Now, that's all well and good, but this is simply a point estimate, which means I need to bring it back to this conversation about confidence. 
Say one of our students is an avid hunter, for example, and has to judge distances on a daily basis. Or perhaps one of our students is a carpenter and spends every spare minute of every day measuring wood before they cut it. So they see uh, rulers and tape measures like this so often that their brain is really well trained at judging uh, short lengths like this. Or perhaps someone is a seamstress who, again, does lots of measuring. So they are constantly training their brain or reminding their brain what 70 centimetres looks like. And of course, there are students who, who do none of this, who might do precious little measuring of distances and or might be short-sighted or might have some impediment to generate the same level of confidence as their other students who are actually pretty good or have spent a long time training their brain to uh, be familiar with basic distances like this. So we need to not only just pull out point estimates because the point estimate from someone who's very confident is way more important than the point estimate of someone who's not very confident about their best guess. And so one way of trying to quantify this confidence is to, uh, while we ask, ask each student to focus on their best guess, their point estimate, and then quantify a tolerance or a range or, a, or an error margin associated with their best guess. And so in this case, the student who I asked, what is your best guess, uh, also accompanied or provided with their best guess, an error margin of plus or minus 10 centimetres. And in this case, I asked for a third number from these students, from this student, I should say. And I said, well, okay, so your best guess is 70 centimetres. Your error margin is plus or minus 10 centimetres, so 60 to 80 centimetres. How confident are you that the true uh, length is within this uh, error range from 60 to 80 centimetres? And... Their answer is, in this case, 90%. So let's look at what we've done. We have started to create a language which allows experts, in this case, my students who are judging the length of a diagonal of a, TV, a monitor or a TV screen, to try and summarize their knowledge, their information, their judgment as it relates to... Um, the diagonal of a TV screen. And what this allows me to do right now is to fit this thing we call a bell curve to then characterize the information that we believe is contained in the brain of my student in question. So before I go on, let's take a quick minute to pause and ask if there's any questions, if there's any anecdotes, any stories, any comments before we move on with uh, trying to use this expert judgment to help us make better decisions. Any questions? Questions, comments? Opinions, thought pieces, essays. Okay, so before I move on, could I ask through a show of emoji-based hands, 
Who has heard of the bell curve slash normal distribution before? Excuse me. See a couple of hands going up. So quite a few of us have heard of it. I dare say some of you are struggling to find where to raise your hand on this uh, digital platform. And uh, so I'm gonna assume that perhaps a good chunk of us have heard of this thing called the bell curve or the normal distribution. Fantastic. Now the bell curve or normal distribution is seen a lot in the natural and physical world around us. And the reason why is because the bell curve actually models random processes that are the sum of lots of other random processes. For people who have endured my conversations in the past uh, and may have come across this normal distribution bell curve conversation, this might be a bit of revision, but it's really important because a lot of the processes around us are based on adding things together. So for example, when we um, measure the height of human beings, which is a random variable, we often see a bell curve. And the reason why is because human height is actually the sum of lots of random processes, which includes DNA, genetics, diet, exercise, uh, injuries, health conditions, diseases, all these things in our history combine in an additive way to influence how tall we are. Even identical twins are not exactly the same height. And that can only be caused by natural variation in the world around us because our height is based on the sum or the aggregate effect of lots of random processes. So we see this bell curve in the natural world around us. In fact, the bell curve was actually created before we realized this really cool feature of it. It was used to um, model astronomical errors. And I mean astronomical errors, not errors made by astronomy. Astronomy is a field of study or research. Now, the measurements that astronomers were making uh, regarding celestial bodies, there were inherent errors in those measurements, those things we were trying to estimate through uh, images we saw on telescopes. And it was found that this bell curve was really, really good at modeling those errors. And it turns out that that's because when we, when we make a, a measurement error, that's the sum of lots of random processes, where our eyeball is, where the datum is, um, errors in uh, where random processes regarding the actual uh, direction of telescopes versus what it says on gauges, so on and so forth. There's lots of random processes which add up or combine to create errors in our measurements. And it just so happened that the bell curve was coincidentally found to do a really good job of measuring those errors. And couple of hundred years later, it was worked out, we worked out why. And so the bell curve is often a really good uh, way of modeling uncertainty in the human brain, because the human brain uses lots of processes to, for example, estimate the length of the diagonal on a computer monitor, which is fantastic because we now know that the bell curve is gonna be really good at modeling the uncertainty we have in people's brains. Now, this means that one person's brain in a way is, is represented by this bell curve you can see on the screen, which means that we now have some sort of quantitative shape to characterize everyone's uncertainty. So this is the actual set of bell curves I derived from uh, my students in this course. 
and you can see that some were way more confident on the diagonal length, the diagonal of the TV or computer screen than others. So the people who are way more confident, who had a, believe they had a much, a much smaller uh, error margin, they had the really tall, narrow bell curves. So those ones who were, weren't really confident, or confident at all, those bell curves were very short and fat because there's lots of uncertainty. And then we use this thing called, wait for it, Bayesian analysis. That allows us to take all these um, sources of information and combine them in a way to create what we call a posterior distribution. And so you, in this case, the posterior distribution, which summarizes all this different information that we got from each one of my students looks like this. Now this clearly, this, this red curve here, which looks like a bell curve and it's very, very close to a bell curve. Um, uh, we can show that if we had lots of lots of information sources, it looks closer and closer and closer to a bell curve. But the really important thing here is that this posterior distribution is a lot more certain or is, has a lot less uncertainty than any of the students' expert, expert judgment. And so when we combine all these uh, expert judgments, all these information sources, all these sources of knowledge, we get this wonderful posterior distribution, which is very concentrated around a certain region. And that allows us to have a lot more accuracy in things we're estimating. And so this posterior distribution allows us to generate what we call a state of knowledge or, or uh, sense of information that involves a lot less uncertainty than if we were trying to individually estimate the length of the di diagonal on the TV screen. But of course, most of you are going to be really interested to see how long the actual diagonal of the TV screen was compared to this posterior distribution. Well, you can see the posterior distribution, this red curve, it seems to range from between 72 to 80 centimeters. Well, it turns out the actual diagonal length of the TV was 76 centimeters, almost right in the middle of this posterior distribution. Now, I have done this experiment over and over and over and over again. It's very powerful because every time I do a course when I have actual students in a real classroom, which you know, ha hasn't happened as often as I would have liked as recently because, um, because of COVID. Um, but every time I get to teach this lesson and every time I have live students in a course and have enough of them, I run this experiment and we use either the, the length of a window or length of a TV. And then after we get go through this process, we quickly work at the posterior distribution. Then I bring out a tape measure and work out how long the actual thing we're all estimating is. And it turns out that without fail, the results typically look like this. We usually get a posterior distribution, which is very, very, very close to the actual metric we're trying to understand. And this should give you an insight into the power of expert judgment. So just imagine if you had 10, 15, 20 people who are going through this process of estimating warranty reliability for a product that they're developing. Um, if you could get results like this in 20 minutes, which would possibly be way more accurate than, your, um, uh, than years of testing, why wouldn't you do this? Well, one of the reasons is because of cultural hangups with uh, subjective estimates, as we sometimes call it, 
But uh, the reality is if you are comfortable with uh, the state of knowledge of your team, then you can get some really powerful results very, very quickly. And this is the world of Bayesian analysis, which gets a bad rap because again, a lot of, lot of statisticians out there believe that this is simply is all about subjective estimates. And so it's opinion-based, not fact-based. And that's, a, that's an unfair um, slur against what Bayesian analysis is. But if we go back to the scenario we're just looking at, each one of these gray bell curves represents a single expert opinion, a single source of expert judgment. But in practice, this could be any information source. It could be uh, information uh, from well, information as it related to a previous model of the product you're looking at. It could be from a textbook. It could be from any, any source of information you have which is what makes Bayesian analysis very, very powerful because it can still use test data. You can use expert opinions, any information source and uh, test data to try and create a posterior distribution which combines all that information. So, um, so Bayesian analysis can do all this stuff. Now, just to get a bit of statistical terms out there, this, uh, these uh, gray curves here are what we call likelihood functions. Likelihood functions are, are essentially the uh, likelihood that our metric in question or unknown of interest assumes a certain value given a, set of a certain um, form of evidence. And in this case, the evidence I received was those three numbers I received from each student, their best guess, their error margin, and their confidence. And for each one of these sets of evidence, I was able to create essentially a likelihood function based on the model, which was the bell curve, which looked like this. And in the guidebook, you have the math that helps you work out how to create a bell curve based on the best guess, where you ask someone about their uh, best guess, error margin, and confidence. Now, in this case, I, you had, when it comes to Bayesian analysis, you need to have what's called a prior distribution as well. The idea is that uh, we, uh, we are up updating our knowledge, our information, whenever we gather new evidence. So we have to start somewhere, and as a rule, we try and use what's called non-informative prize, prize which represent a complete lack of knowledge. Sometimes we uh, make a prior distribution completely flat to say it's equally likely to be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, all the way up to 100 centimetres. But there are some reasons why this is not perfect. But if you have enough sources of evidence, the uh, prior distribution becomes less and less important. So for 20 students, in this case, the prior distribution is less important. And the idea is that the prior distribution represents my understanding before I gathered the evidence, but I got the opinions of 20 students and was able to turn that flat prior distribution, our prior understanding or state of knowledge into an updated um, understanding or, or a posterior state of knowledge when my computer decides to uh, update the state of knowledge on the shared screen, which it's not doing right now. There we go. Oh, we went too far. And the idea is that um, Bayesian analysis allows you to update your state of knowledge, which is represented by these curves, these lines, as we go. And uh, this all starts with the concept of the likelihood. The likelihood is something we see in statistics wherever we go. It doesn't, doesn't matter whether you're doing Bayesian analysis or what we call classical or frequentist analysis. 
We use the term likelihood because it's, a, it's the staple of statistical inference. So uh, I know a lot of my um, people who uh, follow my webinars and courses are very familiar with the good old random hand of failure, which is a simply a chart or sorry, an illustration to characterize or summarize all the different sources of uh, variation or uncertainty in a process such as failure, because failure is a random process. And the, and the re reality is, even though we can look at machines and say hey, those two machines are essentially identical from our perspective, they are manufactured on the same day by the same crew on the same production line, even seemingly identical machines will have some underlying variations, which means that they will fail at different points in time. And those variations are usually nothing compared to the variation in how customers or users will ultimately use those seemingly two identical machines, which means that no matter what happens, we will have different times to failure for seemingly identical things because it's a random process. So in this case, the gray curve here is what we call a probability density function. And that sort of characterizes the inherent uncertainty in, in this case, this particular random hand of failure. And you can see that the data points, which represent individual times to failure of different machines or pieces of equipment, seem to congregate or have a higher density around the regions where the PDF curve is highest. And that's, that's all that the PDF curve does. It just summarizes the density within which we expect random variables to assume certain values. Now, you can see that perhaps in this case, uh, there's a clear correlation between this PDF curve and this data we observe. It seems like that the data is indeed densest where the PDF curve is the highest. Um, so let's just say that this curve we designate as a likely candidate PDF curve to describe whatever it is we're seeing. It seems that it seems to align with the data that we observe. But of course, there's lots of other candidate PDF curves out there, such as this one, which is uh, what we call an exponential distribution. Now, you can see that this PDF curve doesn't really look like a smooth curve we saw in the previous animation where we had where it looked like a bell. This PDF curve looks like a ramp where the most likely um, random variable value is actually at or close to zero. Now, we can see that this PDF curve clearly doesn't describe the density of our observed times to failure or data points. It clearly doesn't. So we might be able to say that this PDF curve is less likely to represent the random process generated these data points. And essentially, if you understand that, you understand what likelihood means. Likelihood is all about um, whether we have, whether the data supports some underlying idea of what's going on. People who maybe originally thought this PDF curve might describe the random process we're observing. Well, as soon as we see the data points, you should be saying, well, you know what? That my first guess at what the underlying random process was is becoming less and less likely. It's not impossible, but it is less and less likely because uh, the height of the PDF curve does not correlate with uh, regions of highest density for our data points. And so that's what likelihood is. But of course, when it comes to statistics, we need to do a bit, a little bit more formalization. So this PDF curve, 
is uh, hopefully you can understand what it represents, um, what it represents in terms of the density or, or frequency or where we expect most of these data points to, to occur. It is based on this probability density function, uh, which is the which tells us the relative probability that a continuous random variable is equal to a specific value, and we often denote this particular uh, curve with the, with the notation lowercase f followed by x in brackets. It simply tells us, or uh, we use this to define different types of random uh, different ways random processes are going to uh, generate outputs. So in this case, the PDF curve, uh, this gray PDF curve looks like it does indeed align with this data because it's the highest, highest part of the PDF curve aligns with the most dense region of our data points. So let's just say this could be, if we knew nothing else, if someone said, hey, well, I think it could be this gray PDF curve, what do you think? You say, well, you know what? It seems to be a relatively good fit, but we need to turn that into a number because we, we are, uh, when it comes to statistics, we do need to eventually convert ideas and opinions into numbers. And the way we convert the likelihood of uh, this particular PDF curve into a number is simply drawing a line up from every single data point to where that data point, uh, where that line, sorry, intersects at the top of our PDF curve. Because each one of these lengths of these lines here gives us the relative probability of each one of these data points having that value according to this, uh, uh, this PDF curve. And essentially we multiply all these heights together to come up with a number, which then characterizes the overarching likelihood of this PDF curve describing our random process. Of course, if we were to do the same for our um, exponential PDF curve, the exponential distribution, you can see that the line's going up uh, on average a lot, lot shorter. When we multiply these heights of each line together, the likelihood goes way down. So we start coming up with numbers that allow us to essentially quantify the likelihood of things like different PDF curves and different models. And that's essentially, if you understand that, you understand what likelihood is. So what makes Bayesian analysis very different from everything else that we tend to be taught first um, in, in textbooks and classes and lessons and things like that? Well, most of the professors and doyens of statistics we first get introduced to are essentially this guy here. Uh, when he eventually comes up, the classical statistician, the, what we call the frequentist. Um, and this professor, this statistician might say something like, it is with 90% confidence that I say that the mission reliability is greater than 0.99. And what that actually means is very different to what we usually uh, take away from a message like this. So what that means, we might look at uh, this sort of statement here and go, great, there is a 90% chance that reliability is greater than 0.99. Now we go back to our professor, back to our classical statistician, and he would say, I didn't say that. And then we would then in response to this response to our response, go, what? Didn't you just say that? it is with 90% confidence, so I say that mission reliability is greater than 0.99. And 
And now we're very confused because we walk, we, we take this sort of statement and conclude naturally that this person is telling us there's a 90% chance that permission reliability is greater than 0.99. But he says, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. So what does that mean? So what is a probability that mission reliability is greater than 0.99? Because it's something we need to know in order to make a decision about whether we are there yet. Anyway, our classical statistician, he will theoretically at least say, I can't work that out for you. I don't work that out. That's not something what I, it's not something I do. And now we are beyond confused. The reason we're beyond confused is because classical statisticians, frequent, frequent statisticians, Essentially, when they say things like confidence, what they actually mean is that for every 10 times I say something with 90% confidence, you would expect me to be wrong once. And so this person isn't actually saying whether uh, what for the uncertainty is on our particular metric, they're essentially expressing the uncertainty on them being right. Now, this might seem like semantics, but the reality is that when we see phrases like the phrase that our uh, statisticians first told us, we go away and make decisions, presuming that he is telling us that there's a 90% chance that mission reliability exceeds uh, 0.99. But in practice, classical statistics, frequent statistics, doesn't ever uh, come up with what we call confidence bounds. They actually talk, it's all technically, from a theoretical perspective, it's all about the probability of them being right or wrong. And of course, this doesn't help us at all. So we need to uh, we need to either do a couple of things. We need to look at this person, understand what frequentist probability is all about, classical school, the non-Bayesian school. Um, and the frequentist probability uh, is sometimes misused in business cases and things like that because we take statements based on frequent statistics, classical statistics, and we interpret those basic statements as, for example, saying that there's 90% chance that reliability exceeds 0.99. This is a sort of phrase we need to be able to digest and put into a business case when we make, decision, make a decision. And the reason why there's this confusing horrible semantic argument between uh, what I'm saying or what, what I'm suggesting you need to interpret from the classical statistician and what seems to make sense in our mind is that is because Bayesian analysis is all about subjective probability and Bayesian analysis is one way of essentially mimicking how the human brain thinks. Our brains are essentially Bayesian. Our knowledge is based on what we have experienced up until today. Our knowledge at the end of today will be different because we have uh, observed things, we have updated our understanding of certain things. And so our brain is inherently subjective, which means that our brain is inherently wired to be Bayesian. It is not wired to be classical or frequentist, even though that is what is taught in a lot of textbooks. And so this subjective probability is something which comes very naturally to us, even if we don't uh, understand it, at least in terms of a definition. Human beings in Bayesian analysis are all about subjective probability. You might think that the stock market has a certain percentage or a certain chance of increasing, but uh, then you read some reports or you see some stock review, uh, see some reviews in, in the Financial Times 
or some news comes around about uh, what's happening in the global market. And then you're going to update your beliefs about where that stock market is going to go. Um, you might have a belief uh, regarding, uh, for example, a mining company, which is all about precious rare metals, I should say, like lithium, which is used in rechargeable batteries. Now, your estimation of how that company is going to perform will possibly improve or increase if you also learn that there is a huge, there has been a huge uh, contract signed for an electronic vehicle manufacturer to provide vehicles to, I don't know, a military force or a large, or a large customer, because that then implies it's going to be increased uh, demand on rechargeable batteries. So therefore, your belief regarding how that mining company is going to perform will probably modify, probably, you probably uh, amend your beliefs to uh, align with uh, an improved or uh, exceeded ex uh, a higher expectation of how that company is going to perform. But in practice, most textbooks are all about frequentist probability. Every textbook though says essentially, once you get frequentist conclusions, just act as if it's subjective, and then you make decisions based on, uh, based on that assumption. Now, the reason why this is bad is outside the scope of this webinar, but I'm trying to at least uh, articulate that there are some things that you need to perhaps dive more deeply into when it comes to, comes to statistics. And sometimes that dive can confuse you further, but if you, um, if you do want to investigate statistics in a, in a more detailed way, it can more often than not, if you take it seriously, help you help provide clarity for what could have been previously confusing scenarios. So let's go back to Bayesian analysis and how I was able to take the expert judgment of 20 different students and come up with a really wonderfully accurate estimate of something that for whatever reason I couldn't measure. In this case, the diagonal of a TV. Now, frequentist statistics can't do this. Frequentist classical statistics can only, uh, it's only based on this thing called the uniform prior distribution only, and it can only take into consideration experimental data. That's one of the shortcomings with frequentist statistics. And so that means that you cannot take into consideration expert judgment when you use classical statistics. Bayesian statistics is not nearly as uh, discriminatory. It can use any information source. It can use any sort of uh, prior distribution. It can use uh, inf information or, or, or data from a similar system. It can use imperfect data where you know there's some uh, errors in where those numbers come from. You just need to model what those errors are. Expert judgment. Any form of information can be fed into Bayesian statistics and you can use any prior distribution. So for example, let's just say someone had conducted Bayesian analysis three weeks ago on a particular metric and they created a posterior distribution. Well, you can now use that posterior distribution as your prior distribution and combine that with any additional evidence that or information you've since come across. And that way we keep updating what we call our state of knowledge. Frequentist or classical statistics cannot do this. And that is, um, and the only way you can, you can sometimes pretend you do this is if you treat uh, frequentist probability as if it's subjective. And as a rule, no one knows when we do that. Uh, most of the time people do it inadvertently and they don't understand why. So 
if you do this, and you probably do, then you're doing a weird case of Bayesian analysis. But the reality is Bayesian analysis is a wonderful way of taking into consideration expert judgment through by turning best guesses or opinions into numbers. So let's look at what look at how this can help us for another scenario. So let's just say that we have a manufacturer of engines or a producer or a reseller of engines. And one test showed that one out of every 20 engines was defective. So that's 5%. Now let's also say that uh, we sent out a quick one question electronic survey to 1000 customers and we got 48 negative responses. Now, we know that not everyone's going to respond to a survey. Sometimes people who receive negative, who have negative experiences are more likely to respond to surveys because they want to be heard. But people who don't have any negative experiences, they expect their experiences to be positive. They're perhaps less likely to uh, respond to surveys like this. So let's just say we walk down to our, um, our marketing team and the marketing team says, well, in our experience, if someone has a negative experience, they are 60% likely to respond to a survey like the one we just sent out. However, if someone has no negative experience, they have a positive experience, they're only, uh, there's only 1% chance of, their of them responding to a survey like this where they say we had a good, good experience. Um, it's just nature of the beast. People who have negative experiences are typically louder. They tend to say more things. They tend to want to be heard. And so even if you have a survey where you have, let's just say a large number of negative responses, it doesn't mean that represents the actual fraction of products or actual fraction of customers who have a negative experience. But we can take this information, combine it with Bayesian analysis and or use it in Bayesian analysis to come up with a really useful summary of what is going on. In this case, we want to understand what the true or what the actual percentage of defective products is. And we have a test, we have some opinions, we have a survey, and when we combine all this stuff together, you can get something which looks a little bit like this. A curve, which is not quite a bell curve, but looks like a bell curve, which summarizes our knowledge based on the test data, the surveys and our marketing team's understanding of customer reactions to those surveys. So this is based uh, again on a, that original test data, expert judgment and survey responses. Now that might mean that you have now saved yourself years or millions of dollars worth of testing to get an understanding like this. And the other thing is that we need to understand that when it comes to testing, we often think testing is the gold standard. It is as perfect or as objective as it can be. But in practice, when we test products, especially when it comes to reliability, the, the environment we create for those products to be tested sometimes doesn't really mimic or represent how customers actually use our products. So even tests where we spend a lot of time trying to make them perfect and representative are often... Uh, often not very useful because our customers find really weird and inventive ways of using our products to suit their purposes, which is not abuse by the way, it's just uh, uh, the nature of the marketplace. So what does that mean? 
it might mean that actually uh, using surveys and marketing team judgment is going to give you a lot more useful information uh, that goes beyond any hypothetical test you could possibly conduct because it is the customers who are going to ultimately be the arbiters of whether your product is good, bad, or indifferent. And they don't necessarily uh, sign up to the beautiful test uh, mission profile you come up with for your particular product to give to help you generate what you think confidence is when it comes to this sort of uh, decision-making. So by the uh, one last thing when it comes to Bayesian analysis, Bayesian analysis, which is seen as a black art, which is seen as some sort of magical thing, which is seen by uh, something which is used by, uh, let's just say, ex hippies or extremists or people who, who believe everyone's important, some lots of nonsense out there that uh, is ascribed to Bayesian analysis. It's also seen as something that's very, very complicated. It's actually a lot easier than you might think. Uh, but to be able to make it happen, to be able to convert all those uh, expert opinions, all those bell curves that I got from my students to help me understand the diagonal of a, uh, of a, um, of a TV screen, it is a subject of another, it is a subject of a course in its own right. I can't, can't uh, I used to think I could do it in its own webinar, but it's, uh, I certainly can't, especially when we need to go through step-by-step step to make sure we understand the steps. But once you do understand the steps, you might be surprised about how easy it is once the context of Bayesian analysis is explained to you in greater detail. And it is a, a very, very useful way of making the most of the information you have because we are surrounded by information. Our classical statistician, our frequent statistician, always complains that he or she never has enough data. Bayesian statisticians instead complain we don't use the information we have well enough. So we have 10 minutes before this, uh, this, scheduled meet this meeting is scheduled to end. Are there any questions, Are there any comments, any, um, any anecdotes? any stories that relate to anything I've been talking about today when it comes to expert judgment and how we use it. Oh, I needed that drink. Okay, so I have a couple of questions for you, which will hopefully help me understand where you guys are coming from as well. If you don't mind typing into the chat window, um, if you turned up today with a preconceived idea of a metric you wanted to gain better understanding of through expert judgment, if it's, for example, MTBF or mass or velocity of a, of a device or, or time to failure or warranty period, what sort of metrics are you interested in in using expert judgment to better characterize. Interested to see if anybody has time to failure. The currents writing for design for me is fantastic. So occurrence ratings are subjective numbers associated with uh opinions regarding how frequently failure modes and failure mechanisms are going to occur customer reviews or sentiment fantastic 
So that's not a million miles removed from the uh, scenario we looked at at the end. Customer satisfaction. Weibull distribution on MTBF versus MTTR. Okay. Building confidence with low amount of test data. Fantastic. So you can combine test data with expert judgment. Min minimum handle force required to prevent inadvertent movement to, to design for mere rankings. Fantastic. So one thing I'll mention um, while people are still typing in and, um, their metrics, when I got my expert judgment from my students, I had to train them. And what I mean by that, I had to teach them how to communicate the, or express their knowledge. And so we went through a couple of practice exercises where I asked them to estimate my height. They said, I want you to give me the best guess, your error margin and your confidence. And of course, when they estimated my height, uh, that's where all the people who didn't actually understand how to communicate their confidence, uh, they made the mistakes. We, uh, some money included two numbers, some included percentages instead of a range for, uh, for the error. Um, and then once we went through that process, people then understood, oh, okay, so now I understand how you need me to communicate my, uh, my state of knowledge. And so I had to train people on how to communicate their state of knowledge. That's the first thing. Once they were all trained, the second thing I had to do was ensure anonymity. So they, uh, when, if I was to ask someone to shout out their best guess, that will, without a shadow of a doubt, influence subsequent guesses being shouted out, especially if, uh, if uh, someone had a best guess which is great, greatly exceeds everybody else's best guess. They might, through, um, uh, through embarrassment or otherwise, uh, adjust what they believe or shout their best guess out to be to try and align with the group. They call that group consensus. It's a very human thing. And the problem with that is we don't want that. We want a natural representation of our experts. We want to have experts who come from all walks in life, some who are pessimists, some who are optimists, some who are experience in this field, some are experienced in that field. So we need a balance of opinions. And so to make sure that the opinion of one person doesn't influence the opinion of the other, we, I had to use anonymity. And all I did was uh, ask everyone to write those three numbers down on a piece of paper and forward those pieces of paper to me. So not, not only did they, uh, those numbers not assign to any one particular person, they were unable to uh, see what other people had written uh, when they formulated their numbers. So for those people who talk about design for mere rankings, one of the, you can follow the same path. Firstly, train your people um, in, to come up with, with these rankings. To be honest, you could go one step earlier and say, uh, focus on having uh, ranking criteria which are articulated to or relevant for your organization. A lot of people use just uh, ranking criteria for occurrence that I've drawn from standards or drawn from how we always do things. If you can get, uh, use language so uh, that relates to your product, um, that's fantastic. It's no point talking about failures or parts per million defects uh, in a ranking system for, uh, for a missile. Missile is all about mission reliability.
parts per million defects are usually aligns with um, high rates of production uh, or, or large scale manufacturing. So use terms in your uh, ranking terminology for design Vermeers that make sense to your scenario. Then train your familiar participants on how to use that, use those as scenarios. And that might mean that you have a little session beforehand where you, you go through a couple of example scenarios and then people um, uh, practice assigning scores to these scenarios in order to come to uh, become familiar with how these criteria align with their best guesses. And then finally, once you conduct your familiar, one way you can you can uh, get some really useful familiar rankings, and I always try to do this when I facilitate my familiars, is ask them to submit their their uh, familiar rankings uh, anonymously. And that can be done again by a piece of paper or even text messages where I get a bunch of people's people's ideas on, on ranking and I simply average it out. That means that I have a pretty good spread of uh, ideas regarding um, uh, familiar rankings. And that means I'm able to get everyone, everyone feels like they've had equal input because they have. But I'm also ensuring that through anonymity and training that these guys are doing their level best at, ex at expressing their expert judgment without being influenced by anybody else. So hopefully that helps those design familiar people out there as well. Okay, I've been doing a fair bit of talking. Um, has anybody got any final comments or questions? Show of hands, perhaps, if anyone, uh, have I used the Dempster-Schaefer theory? Yes, Larry, I have, I have well, I have uh, used it, yes and no. Um, I haven't actually used it to come up with uh, certain out outcomes. I know uh, you're referencing the paper we talked about beforehand. Um, it has been part of a, let's call it literature, literature review I've done for problems which involve expert opinion. But no, I haven't used uh, it to come up with a number. I've, have, I've used it, again, to uh, fulfill part of um, a literature, literature review, review for an expert judgment problem. But there are some shortcomings, I, I would suggest. But the, I'll, I'll keep that outside the scope of this webinar, if that's okay, because I think people might be done with anything beyond Bayesian analysis. Um, Paul asks, your last point on occurrence, would you use mean or median to exclude outliers? Um, for me, I wouldn't, I tend to use the mean. And the reason why I tend to use the, the mean uh, is because again, the median is used to exclude outliers. But when it comes to familiars and stuff like that, and familiar teams, no one should be an outlier. And an outlier is someone who is outside of the mean or not the mean, sorry, outside of what you expect, someone who is not representative. So outliers are, I believe, are a term that's used a lot. But if you have a good cross-reference or cross-section uh, or good representative team in your FAMIA, I would expect that different opinions respect, uh, reference different experiences which you want to incorporate versus uh, allowing allowing you to allowing you to include the possibility of outliers. So I would I use a mean for that reason. I don't uh, outliers is a term which is used I believe too much, and uh, I 
none of my team, if they're selected properly, should be an outlier. They just might have a different experience base which you're actually trying to incorporate into your discussion. Robert asked, how many experts do you need to approach the accuracy you need in your screen measurement? That was 20 in that case. Uh, but that is a, a difficult question to answer because the accuracy you get is a function of a few things. It is a function of how confident each one of your experts are. So for example, if each one of your experts are confident that you would need fewer than 20 to get the same level of accuracy uh, you, observe, you observe in the experiment I showed you. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is um, people often ask, and I know you're not asking this, Robert, but I'm going to answer this question anyway. How many ex experts do I need total? The problem with that is that uh, depending on the question you're trying to answer, you need different accuracy with your, uh, with your conclusions. Sometimes if you're trying to, um, if you need to demonstrate the reliability exceeds 90%, but your five experts all with competence conclude that uh, reliability exceeds 99%, then you don't need nearly as many experts because the question or decision is all about uh, a relatively low bar. If that bar is a lot closer to 99, you might need quite a few more experts and maybe combine that with some test data to get the accuracy you need. So I uh, hope that helps answer your question. But in the scenario we just looked at, that was 20 people. But that is, a, you, you won't get that repeated um, in every single scenario, not a problem. Okay, I think I've exhausted everyone and exhausted all the sources of question. Thank you, Fred, for sharing Larry's article because it, that Larry's article gives you a good insight into, into some of the very, um, uh, into an application, a very uh, statistical application where expert judgment was, was incorporated into a decision-making process. And of course, there's plenty of scenarios out there that go beyond simple Bayesian analysis, although some of us don't call it that simple, that allow us to uh, convert um, best guesses for lack of a better term into meaningful information. There's things like fuzzy logic. There's things like, um, oh, I'm having a mind blank right now, but as you know, there's plenty of ways you can convert best guesses into a number to help you make a better decision. However, I find that Bayesian analysis has been without a doubt the most universally robust and useful approach in my dealings where I've had to convert best guesses into numbers to make a decision. So any last call for questions or comments? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, as always, it is a, um, it is a pleasure uh, talking to you guys. If you have any suggestions about what we need to do moving forward at ascendoreliability.com, please feel free to reach out. We do try and, and, and tailor webinars to the requests of, the, of people like you. If there's any things we can do to improve, if anything we've done well, uh, that's fantastic. Um, please let us know as well, because we need to know what we should keep doing and keep doing harder. But beyond that, hope you, hopefully you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Dave, Robert, and Elise. Frederick, thank you. Keith, likewise.